Good morning, everybody. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 8. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, I do pray that you would bless your word today. Let it go out to everyone who is hearing these words. Let it draw us closer to the kingdom of God, including this man right here. We ask in your name, amen. The Bible says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to those who were sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over to those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Welcome back. Let's do a quick recap before we dig into the text. If you recall, we had left the disciples in bewilderment. As Jesus had asked them how the group was going to be able to feed the 5,000 people that followed them to where they had retreated. We know from the timeline in the Gospel of Matthew that John the Baptist has just been beheaded. When Jesus heard about these events from John's disciples, he and all of his disciples withdrew privately in a boat to Bethsaida, which is a desert region so that they could rest from the crowd. But as will happen, word got out, and as the Darby version poetically puts it, they ran a foot thither out of all the cities and outwent them. Or in today's vernacular, the crowd ran around the lake and got there first. And that's where we will pick up our account this morning. Look at verse 8 with me. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Everything about Andrew's statement in verse 8 emphasizes inadequacy. The Greek term for lad is a double diminutive as he was a little boy. In terms of provision, little children were of no use at all. His five barley loaves were common to the Mediterranean diet. They would have been leavened at least a little, forming the little disc about four or five inches in diameter and then baked. And the Greek term for fish is also the, the diminutive form of a word meaning little fish. They were small seasoned sardine-like fish included for the sake of flavor. This was after all just a small boy's lunch. There was not much to work with. Maybe just think of a granola bar without the sugar. So you have five granola bars and the fish are like little sardine-like things that they would eat with the barley just to give it a little taste. I don't know if you've ever ate sardines. I used to love them, but one day I peeled back that cover and one of those sardines was staring at me with its one good eye and never been able to eat them since. It really has nothing to do with the sermon, but it was just a traumatic experience for me and I want you to know why I am the way that I am. Honestly, I was already a tad bit crazy before this church drove me the remainder of the way. But anyway, Andrew might have been thinking, well, we got two fish. We don't have enough for everyone to even get a tiny bite. But maybe if we ask the people to pretend the fish is a lollipop, everyone could at least get one good lick in. There's a mental image you'll be grappling with for the remainder of the day. 
The second person Jesus dealt with in this story was the lad. It is interesting to think about him for a moment. What do we know about him? For one thing, we know that he was poor. We know this because, as we are told by John, his lunch was composed largely of barley bread. At that time, barley was the cheapest of all bread and was held in contempt. Thus, as William Barclay notes, barley bread was the kind of bread prescribed by the Mishnah as a meal offering for the sin of adultery. And why is that? Because, says the Mishnah, adultery is the sin of a beast and barley is the food of beast. So the lad had this bread and with its two small pickled fish to help make the dry coarse bread go down easier. So we see here uh, is a small boy, poor and insignificant. Yet that boy did something that set him apart from all the other boys who may have been in the crowd that day. That boy gave his lunch, poor as it was, to the Lord Jesus. That lunch was as insignificant as it could be. It was insignificant as the boy was. But the point of the story is that the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant became sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. Now, often in the Bible, numbers are significant. So here we have five loaves and two fish. Five plus two is seven, if my math is correct. What's the perfect number in Scripture? It's the number seven. Later on, the Apostle Paul was told by God, My power is made perfect in weakness. And we're going to see that gloriously played out in today's story. There's an African proverb that says, if you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. In our account today, Andrew almost has it. He tells Jesus there's a boy here with some loaves and fishes, and then he adds the word, but. How easily the word, but, creeps into our thinking. We are aware of the provision, but we start raising an objection when we look at the situation practically. I wonder how many times the Lord has brought us five barley loaves and two small fishes to our circumstances, but we failed to use them because we thought they were too small. Which is really crazy considering God's long track record of using little things and insignificant people. God used a small stone in a small sling to slay a huge giant. He used a little maiden girl to lead a mighty Syrian general to the prophet Elijah. He used a little child to teach his disciples what the kingdom of God was really like. The Lord seems to delight in using a little to do a lot. Maybe if you're feeling the need for a miracle, or for something to break loose, or something to take place, could it be that it's already in your hand? Perhaps it's already been entrusted to you. Yet like Andrew, perhaps you are saying, let's be practical. How is this really going to work? Philip had been confronted with a trying situation, much as we are often confronted, but his response was that which far too often is also our own. A bill comes in the mail and it's larger than the balance remaining in our checking account. What do we do? Do we wring our hands and say, how in the world am I ever going to pay this bill? Or do we take it to the Lord? 
You have a problem in your home, perhaps with your children or your husband or your wife. Do you say, what is happening? How will I ever survive? Or do we enter into the throne room of God? You and I will have learned a great deal about walking with the Lord. And we have learned to spread each difficulty before him as it comes along. This is something quite candidly that the Lord is still growing me in personally. But Philip had been with Christ. He had seen these things. But when the question was put to him for this new situation, his faith was inadequate. He could have said, Yes, I know that you changed water into wine at Cana. I know you healed the son of a nobleman. I know that you made that paralyzed man walk. But I'm not sure you can do that for me. And we can also say that. We see God working with others, but we do not allow that knowledge to carry over into our own lives. But there is nothing that God has done in the life of any other Christian in any period of history that he is not able to also do for you if that is his plan for your life. You can know this. Moreover, you can know that if he has placed something in your life as a test, he has done it in order that others might see him bring blessing through your lives. Verse 10. And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples of those who were sitting down, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. Even though by now you would think that no problem would face the disciples because they have already seen Jesus perform multiple miracles. But please notice that Jesus is still patient and kind. Even though they, like us, can be dull of wit sometimes. I'm surprised there isn't a verse that says, and Jesus, amazed at their dullness, went to a tree and beat his head on it. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, you bunch of bozos, get out of the way and let me do a miracle. No, he met them where they were and said, even though you don't have the faith to see what I can do with the little given me, I'll use you anyway. Could you make the people sit down? Can I use you in that way? Luke's Gospel tell, tells us that the people sat down in groups of 50. When the good shepherd feeds his sheep, he does so decently and in order. Not only does Jesus feed the flock decently and in order, but he feeds the flock carefully. And if we want to be fed, we need to follow that same formula. Too often, we can have a drive-through perspective about devotions. We say, okay, Lord, I've got eight minutes before I have to leave out the door as we flip open the scripture and expect to be fed. Or maybe we engage in what I like to call Bible roulette. That's where you open the Bible and point to a verse without looking and then tell yourself that whatever verse your finger lands on is God speaking to you that day. That is no way to approach Bible study. Perhaps you've heard the story of a man who was seeking guidance for a major decision. He decided to close his eyes, open the Bible, put his finger down, and get guidance from whatever verse his finger happened to land upon. His first trial brought him to Matthew 27, 5. Judas went and hung himself. Thinking that that verse was really not much help, he determined to try again. 
This time his finger landed on Luke 10.37 and Jesus' words there. Go and do thou likewise. Not ready to get up, he tried one more time. This time his finger came to rest on Jesus' words in John 13.27. What thou doest, do quickly. That story, which I'm sure is fictional, still makes an important point, and it is this. Looking for meaning in scripture beyond its historical, grammatical, and logical context is unwise, and even potentially dangerous. A Christian's devotional life just doesn't happen that way. As he did here, the Lord have us not only to sit down, but also to slow down. So try and imagine the scene. The disciples organized the people into groups of 50 and instructed them to prepare for a meal. No one saw any food, and the disciples had no idea how these people were going to be fed. Once the organization was complete, the Lord placed a little sack lunch in front of him and gave thanks. I imagine the disciples glancing at one another as Jesus was praying. Thank you, Father, for this food this large gathering is about to enjoy. This is a reminder that sometimes following Jesus can make you uncomfortable. Now, let me ask you, do these disciples have any idea where all this food is going to come from? No. They simply obeyed Jesus by having the people sit down in groups. The miracle is not if we give our loaves and fishes that Jesus will make this huge mound of fish and then you can feed them. No, first you seat the crowd. This is the pattern throughout Scripture. Noah, you build the ark, and then the flood will come. Abraham, you come out of Ur, and then I'll give you a son. David, you charge a Goliath, and then I will come through. Moses, you go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and then your staff will turn into a serpent. We must always act in compliance first. So we see that first we have to trust him and then act in obedience. Their faith may have failed but their obedience had not. And despite their doubts, they followed the Lord's instructions. Jesus then multiplied the meager offering. Again, imagine the scene. He broke one lunch into two, then again and again and again. He divided lunch multiple times over a period of hours. Earlier, Philip had said there wasn't enough for each person to even receive just a little. But the Lord does nothing by half measures. Instead of the little taste of which Philip dubiously spoke, everyone ate as much as they wanted so that they were all filled. And each person received more than a little. As a matter of fact, they received as much as they wanted. For most of them, this is probably their first full meal in a long time. Leftovers were not a common sight in ancient times. But on that day, 5,000 people were fed, not to mention millions of ants. These people ate and ate and ate. In fact, they stuffed themselves like pigs. I read the word in the Greek could even be translated glutted. I can't prove this. But I think the crowd may have came from Calvary Chapel, Bethsaida. I mean, they stuffed themselves to the proverbial gill. We all know what that's like from time to time. We go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, and in the words of a sister who attends here, 
we put on our stretchy britches so we can be comfortable as our gut expands. The food kept coming and coming, and the disciples kept serving and serving. It's astounding to me how many commentators try to nullify this miracle with ridiculous explanations. What Jesus did wasn't a trick, a gimmick, or a potluck. It was a miracle. They ate until they literally could eat no more. Now, some suggest it wasn't a genuine feeding of the 5,000, but rather a kind of communion service where everyone was given a tiny piece of bread and a tiny piece of fish. Others say that because in Jesus' day, men had long billowing sleeves where they would carry their lunches. When they knew Jesus was looking for some food to share, they tightened their sleeves. Then when they became convicted by the willingness of a little boy who shared his lunch, everyone opened up their sleeves and everyone had a great big potluck. Isn't that just so sweet and adorable? Oprah would have loved it. But it's complete nonsense. It's also significant that John mentioned the fact that Jesus gave thanks. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all state that Jesus looked up to heaven when he gave thanks. By that, he reminded the hungry people that God is a source of all good and needful gifts. This is a good lesson for us. Instead of complaining about what we do not have, we should give thanks to God for what we do have, and he will make that go further. Look at verse 12 with me. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And now Jesus tells his disciples to gather up the remainder so that nothing is lost. This teaches us that God's supernatural provision in our lives is not an excuse to waste any of it. He does exceedingly abundantly above what they ask or even think. He was more faithful and good than they could have ever imagined. Now the word basket is an interesting one because it's the same word that is used of the basket that the Apostle Paul was placed in Damascus and lowered over the wall. So we're talking about big baskets. There is a point here that becomes quite interesting in the actual working out of the story. In everyday business terms, we would say that the supply outstripped the demand. We know it because after the miracle had taken place and everyone had been completely filled, there were still 12 baskets of food left over. Food in abundance. It is always that way with God. In his commentary, Arthur W. Pink observes that when Abraham went up to intercede for God, with God on the behalf of the righteous in Sodom, God never ceased granting until Abraham ceased asking. So also in the case of Elisha's oil. So as long as there were empty vessels to be found in the land, the vessel of the widow was held by Elisha did not cease its supply. The scripture promises that everyone who comes to the Lord in honesty will always be completely satisfied. But how about you who are running away from God? You are unhappy, but you have never come to the point where you are willing to say, Lord God, I have been running away from you, and I have failed to recognize your claim upon my life. 
You are unhappy. In some cases, you are miserable. Why don't you just stop running? Turn to Jesus and see if he is not able to satisfy you completely. At the end of the day, the disciples' lesson should have been clear. The size of a challenge should never be gauged in terms of our capability. Because what we have to offer in ourselves will never be enough. God calls us to commit whatever we have, even if it's no more than a sack lunch. It is true through the whole of biblical history. What is as insignificant as dust? Nothing. You can't even plant crops in it. Yet the dust became man when molded by the hands of the Creator. The jawbone of a donkey is insignificant. But God used a jawbone in the hands of Samson to kill 1,000 of the enemies of Israel. A shepherd's rod is insignificant, but became powerful when God placed that rod in the hands of Moses. A sling is unimportant, but God used it in the hands of David to kill Goliath. And what is as insignificant as a poor girl, a virgin, in a distant town in the Roman Empire? Yet God took one such girl, a girl named Mary, and used her to bring forth the Redeemer. And so do not make the mistake of thinking that what you have is insignificant and therefore useless. You may compare your gift with all the great talents of this world, or at least those you think to be great, and imagine that your gift is worthless. But if you do that, you are forgetting to figure on God and God's desires. What is it, after all, that makes a gift great in God's service? It is not the magnitude of the gift. It is into whose hand is it given. If you will take what you have, no matter how small or how great it may be, and place it in the hands of the Master, you will find that it is more than sufficient for whatever task he sets before you. I like this story because it is true that even when our faith is faltering or lacking, if we will simply and obediently do what the Lord tells us to do, even our small and insignificant actions will be multiplied and blessed. In obedience to the Lord's command, the disciples simply made the multitude sit down and then they distributed the food. The result, not only were the disciples fed along with the multitude, but there were 12 baskets left over, one for each of them. That's why we're always encouraging people to get involved in serving and in sharing and in ministry. It's when you do what the Lord sets before you, no matter how mundane it may appear, that along with those that you serve, you also will receive a full basket as well. Proverbs 11.25 says it this way, A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. By the way, do you know why they have 12 baskets? Because there are 12 tribes in Israel, and we see that Christ is sufficient for Israel. And a little bit later, recorded in the Gospel of Mark, he will feed a Gentile multitude, and there will be seven baskets left over. Once again, the number of completeness. And that teaches us that he's not just faithful to the 12 tribes, but also unto the entire Gentile world. 
In verse 14, they now say, this is truly the prophet that has come into the world. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied that a prophet would come who was like but greater than himself. Those who witnessed the miracle that took place surely thought that Jesus must have been the prophet of whom Moses spoke. As we finish up this morning, Rich Stearns, the president of World Vision, calls it the domino theory of spiritual impact. Imagine a long line of dominoes. When one falls, it starts a chain reaction that can cause hundreds or even thousands of more dominoes to fall. For instance, Jesus set up 12 dominoes as in his disciples, mentored them, empowered them with the Holy Spirit, and then sent them off to go and do likewise. Now there are over 2 billion followers of Christ in the world. That's a lot of dominoes. Stern provides the following story about the spiritual impact that one person can have. He writes, In the 1880s, Robert Wilder, a missionary kid from India, was prepared to return to the mission field. During college, he'd even signed a pledge along with friends to become a missionary. But because of poor health, he was never able to fulfill that pledge. Instead, he encouraged others to take up the task. One domino fell. During a preaching tour that took Robert through Chicago, he spoke to an audience that included Samuel Moffat. Samuel also signed Robert's pledge, and within two years, he landed in Korea. Another domino fell. A few years later, Samuel shared the gospel with a man who had become disillusioned with his Buddhist practice. Kiel Sun Chu trusted Christ, and quickly, another domino fell. In 1907, Kiel was one of the leaders of a revival in which thousands of dominoes fell. Those days of revival are now considered the birth of an independent, self-sustaining Korean church. When Kiel died in 1935, 5,000 people attended his funeral. The church in Korea now numbers about 15 million, and it sends more foreign missionaries than any other country outside of the United States. Millions of dominoes continue to fall. Stearns concludes, As Christians, we are all dominoes in the chain reaction set off by Jesus 2,000 years ago. The amazing thing about dominoes falling is that the chain reaction always starts with one small, seemingly insignificant domino. Whether you are sponsoring children, or bringing shoes or sleeping bags to share with the poor, or filling baby bottles with change for the pregnancy center, or talking to your own children, or praying earnestly for people around this globe, you have no idea how big the impact will be as God multiplies your faithfulness. Well, with next week being Easter, I'm going to deviate from our study in John to show you a great video about the resurrection. God bless you guys and continue to love one another. And that is my prayer for all of us until we can meet again physically, Lord. Bind us together with love. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. See you guys.